to Acts chapter 19. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together. We come now to chapter 19, verse 8. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just wave to them, and they'll put a Bible into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 19, verse 8, and he, that is the Apostle Paul, went into the synagogue in Ephesus and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and uh, Paul I know, but I'm drawing a rather large blank concerning you. Uh, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all of the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on, on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, differentiated from all other names. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And also many of those who had practiced uh, magic brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Verse 23. And about that time there arose a commotion about the way, that is Christianity, for a man by the name of Demetrius there in, in Ephesus, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Diana, uh, made, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. And he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. And moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all, almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. And not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they had heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, uh, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials 
of Asia who were Paul's friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. And some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not even know why they'd come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews be putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for the space of about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. There's uh, no riot quite as dangerous as a religious riot. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? And therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are judges. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, uh, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for these verses in Acts chapter 19. And again, as we do virtually every time, we're humbled to be able to turn to them, humbled to be reminded of the fact that your book is a living book that will outlive the heavens and the earth, and that there is something from these verses that you want to build and speak to us, and each of us, in a powerful way way, without which somehow we would be complete in our relationship with you, our understanding of you, uh, the power and the effectiveness of, of our call as Christians and your specific call upon our lives. And so we pray that you would use this passage to teach us and instruct us, not merely to hear um, a sermon, Lord, but to hear teaching from your word and to desire whatever message this passage contains to come from your throne and into the privacy of our personal relationship with you this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think that in order to appreciate the events that are recorded for us here in Acts chapter 19, it's very important to realize that at the time that the Apostle Paul came to the city of Ephesus with the intent of preaching the gospel to them and establishing a church, a Christian lighthouse, a Christian presence within that city, that Ephesus was at that time nothing short of a demonic stronghold. It was a city that was utterly dominated by 
the demonic realm. It was a center for idolatry and for the occult in the ancient world. When we hear about Ephesus and so forth as Christians, we tend to think of Ephesus fondly because of the church that was established there, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus' uh, letter to them in the book of Revelation and so forth. But uh, very often we're unaware of the overall context of the city that a church uh, was established in. Ephesus was the center for the worship of the Roman goddess Diana, and that was the Roman name given to the Greek goddess uh, <clears throat> Artemis. And Artemis of the Ephesians, this is the, the great goddess that was uh, marked the worship of, um, uh, of, uh, of uh, Ephesus there. It was, <clears throat> was known as the goddess of fertility. And because Artemis of the Ephesians, or Diana as it's translated here in our Bible, was the foremost god worshipped within Ephesus, and because she was the goddess uh, of fertility, uh, the worship of the Ephesian Artemis was marked by great sexual immorality and lewdness. Uh, so strong was this uh, worship of Artemis in Ephesus that it did become the center of her worship, and a great temple was built in Ephesus, a great structure that was dedicated to the worship uh, of Artemis or Diana. That uh, temple, we're told, was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, uh, Greece. We're told by historians that it was a masterpiece of Greek architecture, and to give you some sense of how majestic it was, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient uh, world. And our passage reveals to us that with all of this idolatry uh, being so widespread within the city, there was then coupled with it widespread demonic oppression and demonic possession within the city as well. Before the Apostle Paul arrived in Ephesus, it had this very long uh, history of an undisturbed demonic presence uh, within it, demonic dominance uh, reigned there. And for this reason, it is no accident and important to realize that the Apostle Paul, in the light of this, addressed what is perhaps the most detailed instruction for us as Christians in terms of standing strong in the midst of uh, no matter how great a spiritual warfare uh, might be to the church at Ephesus in his letter to them, where many of you uh, will recognize it where he began in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. It was a, a particular reason why he spoke these things uh, to the church at Ephesus. And then, as many of you realize, he went on in that uh, section in Ephesians chapter 6 to describe the armor itself. 
And despite the demonic hold upon the city, we're told within our passage here, the, especially in the latter part of the chapter, chapter uh, verses 20, uh, 23 through 41, all of it testifies to the impact of the Apostle Paul's ministry there. Ultimately, his ministry in the city provoked a great riot within the city, a great commotion in the city that ultimately a Roman official had to rise up and was barely able to defuse and only able to do it with a threat and a call upon Demetrius and his fellow co-workers to law and order. The origin of the commotion, we understand from the passage, was a silversmith who was named Demetrius. And he was a silversmith who made silver shrines or replicas of Diana. And we all understand something about this, where here it is, the center of the worship of Diana or Artemis. Pilgrims would come in from all around the world as they do to religious sites even yet today, and they would want to take home some kind of a memento of that uh, visit. And so here were these silver images that had been created of uh, Diana, silver images of the temple itself, so they could then take them home and then worship Artemis or Diana in the presence of her image or of the temple there uh, in Ephesus. This was a major industry in the city of Ephesus. And we're told in the passage that so many people were getting saved in Ephesus and leaving the worship of Diana as a result that it began to dramatically and adversely affect the sales of the silver shrines. And Demetrius tied all of this, interestingly enough, to two great truths that Paul had filled Ephesus and the entire surrounding region with. And what were those truths? Verse 26, And this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Paul was preaching in the city, don't worship anything that you can create. Worship the God that has created you. And then the second thing that Paul had been speaking that affected the sales of of these shrines and idols was that Jesus was the way to enter into this relationship with God. And Demetrius refers to Christianity as the way. It's something that he uh, uh, then ascribes to Christianity. And I have no doubt that it was probably in light of the fact that the Apostle Paul made uh, uh, such mention of what Jesus declared of himself in John chapter 14, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And Paul drove home that great truth about Jesus Christ in the city as well. And Paul preached his message, these two things, so clearly and persistently in Ephesus, again, Christianity became known as uh, the way there. Demetrius, in verse 26, himself conceded to the large number of people who had turned away from uh, the worship of Diana. He readily uh, admits it. This Paul has persuaded and turned uh, away many people. In fact, the impact of Paul's ministry was so great, again, in the words of Demetrius, that not only was their occupation as silversmiths 
creating these shrines of Diana, now in danger of being viewed by the population of Ephesus with contempt, and that is being merely nonsense. But in his eyes, there's now a very real danger that this very same attitude was going to be attached to the temple itself and to Diana herself. And he brings this out in verse 27. Now, that's a remarkable admission from an adversary of Christianity and a strong adherent to the worship of Diana. And the entire riot that is described here is a testimony to the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. He had disrupted the worship of this very, very well-entrenched demonic deity in her very stronghold. And that gets all of our attention as Christians, especially as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of impact that we want to have on our families, that we want to have in our neighborhoods, that we want to have in our city and in our nation and in our world. This is the kind of thing that when we read it in the Scriptures, it causes our spiritual lips to smack, that we could be able to taste of that power and to experience something in some measure that characterized the life of the Apostle Paul there in Ephesus. And so we look at the passage and we examine it to see if there isn't something that the Holy Spirit gives us here, some insights into how to make this kind of impact for God, where it is that He has put us in Modesto and where it is that He has put us in this world. And I think that there are uh, insights given to us here. The first thing that we can't help but notice is, is key to the impact that Paul made upon the city was the place of the Word of God in Paul's impact upon the city. And this is spoken of there in verses 8 through 10. Everything that eventually occurred in Ephesus, it began there. It began with the teaching of the Word of God, and it began with the weapon of truth, Paul's commitment to the teaching of the Word of God. And it began with him spending three months in the synagogue there in Ephesus, declaring to the Jews there and the God-fearers there. We're told that he reasoned with them, that is, he aimed at their minds, he persuaded them, aiming at their will, speaking to them about how the Scriptures show that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah uh, described there. And we're told that he did it boldly. That is, he left everything kind of on the court there, so to speak. He held nothing back. Well, after three months, uh, a group within the, the uh, synagogue didn't, they rose up in opposition to what Paul was preaching, and then they began to speak against what uh, Paul was preaching. And so Paul did what he usually did in that kind of a situation. When the synagogue became inhospitable, he just simply moved to another location and continued uh, preaching and teaching. And we're told that he secured uh, a room in the school of Tyrannus, uh, which would have been helpful. The, the synagogue no longer a good place for a center for evangelism in Ephesus. Now he rents a room from uh, this Tyrannus. It's a neutral site. Jews and Gentiles alike, uh, saved and unsaved, would feel very free to come into that environment and listen to him uh, teach the Bible 
and speak uh, and preach the gospel uh, to them. And so he secured that room, and we're told that for two years he taught the Word of God to the disciples that left the synagogue with him and into this new environment as well as to anyone else in Ephesus who then desired to sit in on his teaching. And this kind of thing was very, very popular uh, among uh, the Ephesians. Tyrannus, his, his name uh, is an interesting one, probably uh, was a Greek professor who conducted classes in philosophy or rhetoric or logic and so forth. His name means tyrant. It's an interesting name. I don't know. Um, it, it isn't that likely that his parents gave him that name coming out of the womb. Oh, look, a little tyrant. Let's give him that name. Unless they, like the mother and father, were both Marines and they did the, you know, a boy named Sue deal. All right, he's got to get tough, and we're going to give him a tough name. He's probably nicknamed Tyrant after either his students or uh, the tenants of his, uh, of his building, but it, a nickname that uh, ultimately stuck for whatever uh, reason. It isn't unlikely that Tyrannus used the room in his classroom uh, for his teaching solely in, solely in the morning hours uh, of each day and would have begun early in the morning, dismissed the class at 11 uh, a.m., and then following the custom of those days to then uh, work, uh, which was to work till about 11 a.m., and then break until 4 in the afternoon through the heat of the day, uh, and then people would go home, enjoy a meal, a siesta, wait for the greatest heat of the day to go by, and then go back to their businesses and so forth and open them up now uh, for uh, the, uh, in the cool of the evening. Uh, of course, Tyrannus would have been very, very happy to rent out the lecture hall during the heat of the day. It would have seemed like a windfall to him. Uh, he wasn't going to be using it. It might as well be used by somebody who's going to uh, give me some uh, money for it. And so, uh, and so happy to rent it out to the Apostle Paul. The Revised Standard Version Bible translation uh, of this particular passage, it has a marginal note uh, stating uh, in the margin, other ancient authorities add, uh, quote, from the fifth hour to the tenth, describing uh, this break that Paul used in order to teach there in the school of uh, Tyrannus. And, they, and that is a quote from a fifth century manuscript. And the, the fifth hour uh, of, uh, of the day would have been 11 o'clock in the morning, the 10th hour, uh, 4 p.m. And that's when Paul then taught the Bible in that school of Tyrannus. And uh, this whole practice of siesta, of course, and the uh, hottest part of the day, it continues in uh, many parts of the world even to this, uh, to this day. But if Paul did uh, uh, teach for those five hours every single day, uh, six days a week, not counting the Sabbath, which he would have probably uh, uh, taken off, uh, then and uh, teaching during those hours to anyone who would come and listen, uh, working early in the morning until 11 o'clock as a tent maker in order to put food on the table, then teaching during those five hours, returning to his tent uh, making in uh, the evening. That was the rhythm of his life for two consecutive uh, years. And again, if he taught there uh, five hours a day, six days a week, again, taking the Sabbath off for two years, that adds up to 3,000 
1,120 hours of teaching. I know some of you were trying to work that out in your head, uh, so I, I did it for you. Uh, imagine sitting under the teaching of the Apostle Paul for 3,120 hours. I'd just take one cassette tape or one iPod download of one of those studies. Imagine over 3,000 hours of being able to absorb Old Testament and New Testament from this apostle. And think about how deep a person's knowledge of the Word would become as a result of it, and in a very short period of time. If a Christian were to attend, you know, the average church once a week and listen to a uh, one-hour sermon each week, it would take that Christian 60 years to get the kind of exposure to the Bible and the Word of God that these people were getting in just two years through the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. It's no wonder, we're told in verse 10, that as a result that all who dwelt in the vicinity of Ephesus heard the Word of the Lord Jesus. In other words, people became Christians. People began to learn the Word of God with this kind of a earnestness, this kind of a hunger. They grew in their understanding of the Word of God, and then they proceeded to do what Christians do everywhere. We then take that Bible that we've learned everywhere we go in life. We take it back into our homes. We take it back into our neighborhoods, into our city, our places of business. They took it on business trips. They took it on vacations everywhere that they went. And in just this way, Churches were started in that entire region. A church was established in Colossae. A church was established in Laodicea. Paul never went there and established those cities. They were started by people who were impacted by the Word of God there in Ephesus and ventured out, and then uh, a, a church getting established in that way. In addition uh, to this, God further confirmed the preaching of Paul and the teaching of Paul with miracles, we're told in verses 11 and 12. Uh, In fact, we're told that they were extraordinary uh, miracles that Paul was doing. And these miracles of healing and deliverance from demons occurred when Paul would lay his physical hand upon people. They would be healed. God would heal them through Paul. They would have the demon would come out of that particular uh, person. And so clearly uh, we know, you know, that we... All of this is happening in in his life as it would just happen with his personal touch. But we're told additionally that people were being even healed when people would take his sweat cloths and take the apron. Remember, this is a a laboring man. He's he's working in Ephesus. So as he works making these tents, he's got a rag in his pocket, and he wipes his, his brow, he wipes his arm, he takes the apron and puts it up. We all understand the imagery. And they were even then taking these sweat cloths of his in the form of a rag or in the form of aprons, and because just of its contact with the Apostle Paul, then taking it to people in need of healing or deliverance from demon, and just the contact with the rag was doing it. God was meeting them on their level. God was meeting people, and it was just a classic 
you know, uh, early church uh, power encounter. It was to let people know there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new God in town, the only true and living God in town. And so when it talks about the fact that extraordinary miracles were being done by the Apostle Paul, it means that he didn't need to even be present for that to happen through his life. Even things that were associated uh, with him were being used uh, in uh, this, this way. And so people were being healed, and then very significantly to our account here, evil spirits were cast out of the people there in verse 12. And again, this incredible power counter between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And because of the superstition and because of the idolatry and the demonic stronghold that was Ephesus, they got it. They understood it. They realized something new has entered into our city that has never entered into our city in this way before. Some new message, some new God, and, and, and so forth. And, and they quickly noticed uh, this dynamic with the Apostle uh, Paul, and we'll see that in a moment. And this was just God's way of speaking to the people here, the God who is greater than all these things that they were worshiping is the God that Paul is preaching. The miracles were never done just for God to say, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat, or to just flex his muscles and say, this is what I can do and your gods can't do. All of the miracles were performed in order to confirm the message of Paul, to confirm the gospel that he was teaching, and then to confirm his teaching uh, from the Bible. It was the message that was everything. It was the message that changes a life for eternity, not a miracle, but it was to get their attention, and get their attention, uh, it, it did. Now, I think in terms of personal application here on uh, the desire for us to impact the world and in a way in our world in the same way that the Apostle Paul uh, did here is it helps us to realize that no Christian can hope to have a spiritual impact in the world around us without uh, possessing a deep knowledge of the Word of God. In fact, a, without a deep understanding of God's Word, the Bible teaches we will barely be able to withstand the spiritual warfare that comes against our own life and survive in the midst of it as a Christian, let alone to come against that kingdom of darkness and make an impact in pushing uh, it back. It's interesting to notice and to realize that when Paul later wrote to the church at Ephesus concerning uh, putting on the whole armor of God, again, Ephesians chapter 6, it's interesting to note how much of that armor is directly related to the Word of God. We are to gird our waist with truth, Paul said. We are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are to take the shield of faith with which to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. No soldier in the ancient world 
could ever hope to stand in battle if his belt was not in place and if it wasn't securely tied. That belt held his armor around his waist, the breastplate of righteousness. It held his clothes in place so that he wouldn't get tripped up and had the freedom of movement. No soldier could ever stand without a sure footing, without a solid uh, footing. To fall in, in battle in the ancient world was to almost die uh, immediately, and no soldier could ever stand without uh, a shield and without a sword. And the same things that are true on a physical realm are true of us as Christians in terms of engaging and making a difference for the kingdom of God in the spiritual realm as well. And I think it's important to realize that the size of our shield individually in this battle as Christians, the size of our sword in this spiritual warfare that God has called us to is directly proportional to our knowledge of the Word of God. And God intends each of us and allows for each of us to have a massive shield of faith and a massive sword of the Spirit in this warfare that we are engaged in. But we only have them to the degree that we possess a knowledge of God's Word. Sometimes people will catch me and they'll say, you know, Damien, I don't know exactly what God is calling me to in my life. I don't know what the calling is. I know something's coming, but I don't understand it yet. And so what can I do in the meantime? Fill needs, yes, around the church and so forth, but what can I do in the meantime to prepare for this calling that isn't yet clear to me? And I always tell them the same thing. Learn the Bible. Learn the Bible. Read it from one end to the other. And then don't just read it. Study it from one end to the other. Take individual books of the Bible. Find out what the themes of those books are. Why, do those Bible, why are those books in the Bible? Outline chapters within the Bible. Because sometimes once you get going in what God has called you to do, you may not have that kind of time uh, again. But there is the recognition, and what I'm saying to people is, is that no matter what our calling is, there, the time that is spent growing in the Word of God is never wasted time. No matter what our calling is, we all need to have a deep knowledge of the Word of God and a working knowledge of the Word of God. And that's important for me to understand as a Christian and for all Christians to understand. It isn't the ability to sit and listen to a Bible study on an iPod or to sit in a room like this in any given church in the world and to listen to what's being said and and to say, I know that, I know that, I know that. I've heard that, I've heard that, I've heard that before. I wish he'd tell me something new. I've heard that before, I've heard that before. That's, that, that's a beginning point. The knowledge of the Word of God that we need to have is not to recognize something we've heard before, but to look and to be able to say, yes, I know that truth. I know where to find it in the Bible. I know why it is truth. I know how it's connected with the rest of the Bible, and I know how to take that truth and communicate it effectively to someone else. And this is the kind of a knowledge of the Word of God that, of course, each of us as Christians are uh, called to, and the reason that we give 
such a place to the study of the Word uh, here at this church as well as, as happens in many, many other uh, churches as well. Impacting the world for God, it all begins with this mighty, powerful weapon called truth. Behind all of this spiritual warfare that is going on, it is a battle between lies and truth, and we must know the truth to be able to do successful battle against lies. A second thing that I think we notice here in terms of learning from Paul in order to be, uh, have the kind of impact we want our own lives to have in the demonic environment that, you know, we might find, our, we find ourselves in, in the world is found in verses 13 uh, through 17. And it teaches us that, and, and before I get to that, let me say this, you know, we can look at something like this and a person can feel like, well, um, you know, all right, Ephesus was a center for, uh, you know, uh, demon oppression and it was a heavily uh, demonized city. But, um, you know, I don't know about the United States of America and I don't know if it's the same in the world that, you, you know, that, that we live in. And, you, and you, you look, because we'll look sometimes and we say, well, we don't see as many demon-possessed people we're coming into contact with in the same way that Paul is here in Ephesus and so forth. And so, you know, we're not up against such, a, uh, such an onslaught of darkness and, and such an onslaught of evil. But I think the fact of the, the matter is we look at the devil, not in the, the kind of uh, symptom sins of his life, but we look at the sins that took him down. And then we look at those sins in terms of their expression within uh, our culture and within our nation and our world, and we realize, no, this is a very heavily demonized place. There's a lot of demonic activity. What was it that was the original sin of the devil? It was rebellion against God. It was rebellion against God. And why did he begin that rebellion against God? It was the first sin introduced into all of creation. He did so out of pride. And you look in the nation in which we live and look how uh, within entertainment, within uh, education, within television shows, within music, within uh, movies, and even within formal education, how uh, 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 systemic it is now, the nurturing and the encouragement of rebellion against God. How many voices are there in our culture in that direction, as opposed to how many voices are there in our culture calling people to God? Godliness and to goodness and to live for God and to walk with God and to know your Creator and to submit to that Creator. It's an avalanche of darkness in comparison to light and the culture in which we live. And so we see it, 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 it all around us it, if we have the eyes uh, to see it. No, we live in a very, very demonized world and a very, very de de demonic world and a very demonic uh, nation. And these are the things that we need to stand and the things that we need to do to make this kind of a difference. The second thing the passage teaches us in this regard teaches us that we have no hope of victory in addressing this spiritual realm without possessing our own personal relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. Again, verses 13 through 17. 
And here in the passage, it's almost comical if it, you know, if it wasn't, if it didn't have a happy ending, uh, you know, to it. Of course, a tragedy of it at the same uh, time. We're introduced to these itinerant uh, Jewish exorcists, and seven of them, or in particular, are mentioned: the seven sons of uh, of Sceva. They are not Christians. And they're itinerant traveling exorcists. They would go from one city to the next city, and they would make their money by casting demons out of the various people that become uh, demon-possessed as a result of everything that was being worshipped within uh, those cities. This was their livelihood. Ephesus, because it was a center for the occult, of course, it became then a center for demon possession and then a center, an important stop on the circuit of these itinerant uh, exorcists. There was a lot of business to be had uh, in Ephesus. The The method by which these ancient exorcists would cast out demons in those days is that they would come to the person that was demon-possessed and they would then uh, 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 proceed to uh, uh, pronounce uh, spells or um, magical kind of incantations over the person. They would then begin to call upon every name of every god they knew. They would declare and call for the demon to come out of the person in the name of every Greek god that they could name, every Roman god that could be named, every lesser god that was worshipped in the uh, within the Roman Empire. And the idea was that somehow in the course of doing all of this, there would hit this critical mass of the power that was represented by all of these gods, and then finally it would break the hold uh, of, the, of the demon upon this man or woman, and they would then have to vacate. And so they were using the authority of all these various gods, and they would continue just to speak these things until they saw some kind of a, some kind of a result. Well, you can well imagine how their eyes must have lit up when they witness all of the people in Ephesus who are being delivered of their demons in just one name, in the name of Jesus Christ, and how simple and how clear and how powerful and how dynamic and how decisive it was before their eyes. All they could see is just dollar signs. All they had to do was just add the name Jesus to all of these other names that they're invoking and to see what would happen. And so the entire group of these exorcists, including the seven sons of Sceva, they took it upon themselves to declare over one demon-possessed man, verse 13, we exorcise you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. The problem is they're using Jesus' name in a superstitious way. They're using it as like a good luck charm, a magic formula. And the demon was not impressed, not one single bit. He did have a reaction. The reaction was twofold. The first was verbal, and the second was physical. Notice in verse 15 he declared, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? If you're ever in a scene like that, run out of the room as quick as you can because you're going to get beat up upon by that demon uh, in a moment. So that was his verbal reaction. It's an awful thing when the exorcist comes uh, to then speak to this demon, and the demon gives the exorcist a lesson on the power of the name of Jesus and the significance of Paul's ministry. The second thing that he did was uh, physical 
The demon used the man that he was possessing then to leap upon them. He overpowered them, prevailed against them. He gave them just an old-fashioned whooping. And they fled out of the house, and they didn't flee out of that house until he had beat them to a pulp, and they escaped without a single stitch of clothing on them, which is always an embarrassing thing, uh, whether you're in junior high being pushed out of the shower locker room uh, or whether you're a Jewish, uh, in the Jewish culture as an itinerant, uh, you know, uh, exorcist here. They fled out naked and wounded, and everything they intended to do to the demon, the demon did to them. And again, as tragic and as as humorous as as the story is, it had a good ending in that the whole city heard about what the demon declared about Jesus and declared about the apostle Paul. And fear then proceeded to fall upon them, and the name of Jesus was magnified. It was put in a category of one in the city of Ephesus. There is no name like that name in uh, in this dealing with the spiritual realm. And thus this passage teaches us a very important lesson. It teaches us that we can have no real authority in the spiritual realm without being a Christian without having a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, who is the Christ, because only in this whole wide world, only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have absolute authority over that demonic realm. And superstition doesn't work, and religious superstition doesn't work. It's all useless. Everyone must have their own personal relationship with God in order to wield any kind of influence uh, against the kingdom of darkness in this world. It is the only thing that the devil will respect. So it's not enough to know God's second hand. It's not enough to know Jesus, my, the, my, the Jesus that my grandparents love or the Jesus that my parents love or the Jesus that my husband loves or the Jesus that my wife loves. As the old saying goes, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. And if you are here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, but you are demonized, and you are enslaved to sin and darkness. It's got you. It has its grip upon you, and you desire to be set free from it. Only Jesus can do that for you. And it means repenting of our sin, changing our mind about the direction we're going in life, and deciding I'm done with my rebellion against God, which is at the core of the pickle that I'm in. I'm going to rectify this at this core. I turn from my own self-will and sin. I turn to God. I put my faith in His Son for the forgiveness of sins. And when a person does that, the greatest miracle that it can occur in a human life occurs. The Holy Spirit comes into your life, and you now belong to God and only to God, and there's nothing that the devil can do then uh, to penetrate because we're God's property, and God will not share me with the devil. As the Apostle John put it, greater is he that is in us, that is the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, that is the devil. 
Now, I close with looking at one final key to possessing spiritual influence in the world that I see in this passage, and that is the importance of burning bridges to sin. The importance of burning bridges to sin and bridges to my old life, my old before Christ's life, sinful life, and to do it at whatever the cost is required in order to do that, and then to leave those bridges burnt to leave them a heap, to never rebuild them in my life. When the events concerning the exorcist became known throughout the city, it produced a very, very healthy fear in people concerning the demonic realm. And it didn't just do it among those who were uh, unsaved, but it did so among those who were already Christians but hadn't fully turned away from the sin of their former lives. And so apparently they'd become Christians, but they secretly left bridges open to all of this uh, demonic side, all of the magic that they had practiced, and, uh, and, 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 and to these magicians and exorcists that filled uh, Ephesus, to the dark realm that they represented. And they kind of wanted to hold on to both worlds. I want to be a part of this thing that I see that Jesus is doing, the kingdom of light, but I don't want to lose all contact with this other thing that, that I've invested such a significant part of my uh, life in. And so they were living a double life. And yet when these great events occur here and they saw for themselves the power and the darkness of the demonic realm here and the power of Jesus' name and his kingdom against it, they confessed, confessed their sin of compromise. They repented of every ungodly and sinful connection a connection with their former life, and they fully committed themselves to walking and living in the light. And then they did something more than that. They took it a step further. Those who had practiced magic before their conversion then brought together all of their books, books of spells and things like this, and they publicly burned them on the streets of Ephesus in a great fire. And they did so despite the astronomical value of what it was that they were ridding their life of and that they were uh, burning. The total value, we're told, of the books and the scrolls was 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver was a wage of a man per day in the ancient world. Those of you who are lawyers or plumbers or carpenters, you take it in your particular occupation and uh, figure out uh, what gets paid, you know, in the course of a day in your occupation. Multiply that by 50,000 and you get an idea of the value of what was being burnt on, on those uh, on those streets, and they took every connection with darkness and sin and ungodliness in their lives, and they destroyed it. They burnt it to the ground. They didn't sell the books. They didn't put them in storage. They burned them. And the whole use of the word burn and the strength of the passage in terms of what's being communicated here is there is a permanence about that word. 
When you burn something, then you can't go back to it. It's burned. It is a, a when someone burns that bridge to their ser- sinful past, they do it with the idea that I, while I am thinking clearly as a new Christian, while I have spiritual power in life that is so pure and powerful in my life as a new Christian, I may never be able to think this clearly again. I take this moment and I burn these bridges to sin that have mocked my life because I never want to re- return and pass over them again. I want a final break with it. Now, people get freaked out about book burning in history because usually it's led to bad things. But you notice in the passage that's not what's happening here in the sense that the church never told them to do this. Paul never told them to do this. This was individual and personal and the privacy of their own heart between them and the Holy Spirit that they took these scrolls and they burnt them to ashes. The application is an important one. And I ask myself, but I ask you with me this morning, did you and I, when we first became Christians, ever allow that fire to burn through our lives? Did we ever allow that fire to burn through our lives and produce a complete and determined break with our sinful past? Or did we spare our favorite sins? Did we keep the doors open to returning to them just in case? And as we see in our passage, that is the mark of a Christian who, number one, lacks the fear of the devil, lacks an understanding of how dangerous he is and how eager he is to destroy us, and number two, lacks a fear or a respect or reverence for God. When James wrote his epistle in James chapter 1, he wasn't just looking for like some nice thing to say that would fill out the chapter when he wrote in this regard that no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, just hassles you a lot for the rest of your life. That's not what James wrote. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And because James knows our capacity, my capacity, even as a Christian, to not take this seriously in my life, he then goes on and says in the next verse, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every sin that I keep alive in my life, every bridge that I keep built in my life that is a path back to sin and darkness, it works toward our physical and our spiritual death. And again, we have a tremendous capacity for self-deception 
in this regard. And that's why James does warn, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Sometimes I think that we can tend to think that we found a way. Here I am, the miracle man. I found a way to juggle both kingdoms, reconcile darkness and light in my life. They can both, you know, uh, be reconciled and find expression, you know, here in me and the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And then one day we wake up and we realize we can't. And I wonder how many people become Christians and play this game. And then one day they end up walking away from Christianity, then to be swallowed up once again by sin and all of the world, all the while convinced that Christianity didn't come through for them, Christianity didn't work for them, God let them down, when in truth, it all had its origin in a failure to burn bridges to sin in their lives, in our lives, a failure to be ruthless with sin at the very beginning of our Christian lives. And then ultimately we become another testimony to the truth that James warned us about. And then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And the beautiful thing about it, because of the God that we worship and we serve, is it's not too late to do that, to burn those bridges. If I didn't do it when I first became a Christian, to burn every single one of them that I know that God forbids for my life as a Christian and to choose that my life is going to be one that magnifies the name of the Lord Jesus and I want the fullness of that to radiate from my life. Burn the bridge. Burn the bridges. Burn every one of those stinking, lousy bridges that tempts us within our life. And I exhort myself to do so this morning if I haven't done so yet in my Christian life. And let me close by making mention of another scenario that is equally as dangerous. I think of the other temptation in this regard, and that is to begin our Christian lives in that clarity of thinking, the Holy Spirit in us, baptizing us with the Holy Spirit. We see our sin in the devil for who he is and what it is in our life with that crystal clear clarity. And so we burn the bridges to the sin, and we begin our Christian lives with a strong, decisive separation from sin. But then over the long haul of years and then decades to slowly but surely reintroduce those sins back into our lives and then remarkably to consider ourselves to be for the reintroduction of those sins into our life to actually be a mark of spiritual maturity. And in the honesty of our own heart, if some of us might, and I'm not thinking of anyone here this morning in particular, but I want to break a hold of whatever the devil has upon any of our lives. I'm not fighting against anyone individually in this sermon. I'm fighting against this realm that wants to put us to sleep as Christians and make us content with a lukewarm relationship with Christ 
and then to get trampled underfoot as a result of it. And if we look at our hearts this morning as Christians, and if any of us look at it and say, if I was to be honest with anyone other than God, who I have to be honest with, in terms of separation from sin and the burning of bridges to access to sin and giving access to the devil in my life, I was far more mature, five minutes old as a Christian, than I am now years later and decades later. I've rebuilt all of those bridges, having lost sight of the fact that I burned them because at one moment in time, I recognized the danger that they represented to me, and now I've lost complete sight of the danger that they represent to me yet this day. And the importance before we leave this room today and go wherever we're going to burn those bridges once again and allow the Holy Spirit to raise the standard of holiness within our life. Not legalism, but holiness, Christ-likeness, godliness within our lives. To let that standard be raised in a way that makes us a distinctive people in this city and in this nation and in this world. And it requires a burning of those bridges, a once and for all, leave them a heap of ashes, and the decision to do that. And a room like that, this this morning, under the weight of God's Word and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, burn, baby, burn, every one of those bridges. And so what's needed for us in order to stand victoriously in this very demonized, demonically influenced environment of the world, in order to be an influence for the kingdom of God in the midst of that darkness, and our passage teaches us, number one, we need a deep working knowledge of the Word of God and the importance of growing and continuing to grow in that. Number two, we need a personal and living relationship with God and then number three, a desire for godliness and purity that is willing to permanently burn any and all bridges back to sin in our lives, no matter what the cost to do so. Something great happened in Ephesus as a result. And the same thing can happen in our families and in our city and in our nation and in our world as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, there's such a spirit of deception in the world in which we live, and we know that we have but a faint glimpse at it, the capacity to fall asleep as a Christian, to become lukewarm as a Christian, to settle down into a Christianity that makes everyone else around us comfortable and a Christianity that makes us happy as well, and to become content, Lord, with a life, a Christian life that no longer pushes back 
no longer influences for you, you no longer an influence for your kingdom. And we pray this morning for a work of your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives, and we pray that you would reestablish the high standard that we see in your book, in your Bible, and in this early church in the book of Acts. We thank you, Lord, if in any of our lives something from what we've looked at today has smashed to smithereens some redefinition of Christianity in our own lives that we have fashioned and we have found acceptable. Lord, take us out of that, uh, that slumber, out of that stupor, and into the fullness of what it means to be a Christian in this world, that we might see the same dynamic of your Spirit through our lives everywhere you take us. I pray, Lord, for myself. I pray for every man and woman that stands before you in this room and in the fellowship hall. And I pray for every person that's watching online. And I pray that you would not allow us to go to sleep one more night in our life with any of these bridges still intact. We pray for that great work of conviction and power in each of our lives by your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.